Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of Central Florida podcast. This is the podcast where we explore Central Florida's history through the artifacts found in local area museums and historical societies. This series is brought to you by Riches, the regional initiative to collect the history, experiences, and stories of Central Florida and the Orange County Regional History Center. I am Katie Kelly, and I'll be your host for today's episode titled Icons of Hate. Without doubt, one of the most popular icons of hate in American history is the white robe and pointed hood of America's most famous vigilante terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan. From its founding, the Klan promoted tradition and ritual, incorporating symbols and imagery into their ceremonies and activities. The history of the Ku Klux Klan goes back nearly 150 years to the days of Reconstruction. Immediately following the end of the Civil War, the South was experiencing great political unrest and economic devastation. At the time, many conservative white Southerners were shocked to find African Americans voting, owning farms and businesses, as well as enjoying the rights of citizenship so soon after slavery. In reaction to these social changes sprang one of America's most enduring and prolific hate organizations. We spoke with Michael Newton, author of The Invisible Empire, The Ku Klux Klan in Florida, and he told us about the transformation of the Klan from the 1870s, when it died out, to the 1910s, when it reemerged. It has been part of the American racial landscape since. The original uh, Ku Klux Klan of the Reconstruction era was basically a paramilitary resistance movement against so-called radical Reconstruction, aligned with the Democratic Party of the South at that time, or as they called themselves, capital C conservatives, and in their terms, it eventually redeemed the South for white home rule. The so-called reborn Klan of the 1920s actually came into being in 1915, at the same time that D.W. Griffith released his film, The Birth of a Nation, based on several racist novels written much earlier in the century. And a defrocked minister in Atlanta, Georgia, named William Joseph Simmons, was hit by this idea that he could revive the Klan primarily as a patriotic and fraternal order and, incidentally, make a financial killing. The 20th century Klan ended up going nationwide. It was affiliated with both political parties, primarily Democrats in the South and Republicans in the North. It was, to a large extent, a fraternal organization pretty soon went into politics so that various individuals who wanted to run for office found in certain states with large Klan concentrations that it was to their benefit to join, and they included various governors, congressmen, U.S. senators, and allegedly at least a couple of uh, future presidents. Whereas the original Klan was primarily rural and made up of Confederate veterans, the modern Klan cut across all social lines and included what were then called the best people of the South, including many professional individuals, doctors, politicians, lawyers, and hundreds of Protestant ministers. This new clan was much different than the original because it was a national movement, with people forming chapters not only in southern communities, but outside of the South in places such as New York City and Indiana, while the Chicago chapter bragged that it had the largest clan membership of any metropolitan city at 50,000 members. What makes this iteration of the Klan important and different is that it was an urban and national phenomenon, brought on like the original Klan due to the changing role of African Americans who came back from World War I and publicly confronting the racism they found in America's large cities. In Florida, the Klan's state charter was headquartered in Orlando, and they wielded significant political influence. 
We are looking at two items. The first is a white robe with pointed hood, which is the iconic uniform of the Ku Klux Klan and is immediately recognizable to most Americans. The second item is a booklet entitled Ritual and Manual of Meetings and Ceremonies that would have served as the handbook for Klan gatherings. Here is what Michael Newton told us about the robe uniform's likely origin and meaning. Klan robes originally in Reconstruction for the very first din of the Klan were made up by the members' wives, and they resembled sort of elaborate Halloween costumes, some of them with masks that had big noses and horns and so forth, and made them literally look like devils. And these were used purportedly at least to frighten superstitious former slaves. All of the costumes were regularized after Simmons revived the Klan. They had, of course, the white hood and robe with a little cape around the shoulders, which were for the rank-and-file members. And then as you graduated in rank, different colors of robes would be assigned so that the imperial wizard at the top of the heap normally wore purple, being considered a royal color. The grand dragon usually wore a red robe. The chaplains would wear black and so forth. They were adorned usually with Confederate flag appliques, sometimes on the sleeves or shoulders. The main symbol of the Klan was a circle sewn on the chest. Sometimes they wore two with a cross in the center, symbolizing, of course, uh, Christianity as they perceived it, and then a little triangle over the cross containing a symbolized drop of blood. Following World War II, black Americans returned home with renewed ambitions to gain equal rights. It is from this era that our second object, the booklet, was produced. Here is what Newton told us about the function and purpose of this kind of Klan literature. The original document for the National Klan spelled out who could belong, basic rules for dividing up the empire, uh, states were realms, congressional districts were dominions, and so forth, the election of officers. But at the state level, also the Grand Dragon often operated a publishing house that could issue booklets on various rules and regulations to the individual claverns. could be Again, anything from the duties of local officers to various rules that might get a Klansman expelled or forced to pay a fine for some perceived misbehavior. And the publication of the literature was actually, to some extent, a money-making scheme because Klansmen were also urged or ordered to subscribe to the various Klan newspapers and to purchase these little rule booklets along with their robes and flags and various other paraphernalia, all of the money made its way back to the state headquarters and then eventually a share went to Atlanta. While the leaders and spokesmen of the Klan claimed that violence was not sanctioned by the organization, there was undoubtedly a conflict between endorsed activity and practiced activity, as Michael Newton tells us. Although they denied any violent intent, there were, of course, frequent displays of weapons and so forth at Klan rallies. The Imperial Wizard, in theory at least, ran the whole show nationwide with Grand Dragons in charge of each state who supposedly took orders from him and then administered the lower levels, uh, although there was conflict often between the Grand Dragons and the Wizard, and some would defect and form their own clans or sometimes just steal the local treasury and head for the hills. Uh, there was always an effort to impose discipline from above, but at the grassroots, often there was sort of uh, anarchy going on. The claverns would organize what they called wrecking crews to uh, carry out 
floggings and so forth, and sometimes these individuals would just get drunk and go off on a tear and do whatever suited them. In Central Florida, these so-called wrecking crews were very busy in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Crimes attributed to these renegade Klansmen during these years include battery and other acts of intimidation against black voters, numerous floggings, and several murders. The perpetrators of these crimes were rarely brought to justice, due in large part to the Klan's political influence in the area. Here is Ben Green, author of Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore. I don't think people today have any idea how strong the Klan was in Florida. Uh, we think of Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia or something, other states as being Klan strongholds. But Ku Klux Klan pretty much ran central Florida in the 1940s and early 50s. Elected officials, the sheriff of Orange County, uh, city commissioners, mayors, um, doctors, lawyers, they were all members of the Klan. And they had really a stranglehold on central Florida in particular. One of the most significant events suspected to be the work of the Ku Klux Klan of Central Florida is the assassination of civil rights activist Harry T. Moore. Moore found himself on the Klan's radar for his leadership in the local chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, his campaign to end lynching, as well as his efforts to register black voters. On December 25, 1951, Investigators believe Klan members exploded a bomb under the bedroom of his Mims, Florida home that resulted in the death of both Moore and his wife Harriet. This made them the first civil rights leaders assassinated during the modern era. The assassinations of Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King Jr. would follow over a decade later. Sadly, Moore's murderers were never brought to justice. It was not until recently that investigations into their assassinations were made public. Once again, Ben Green. Harry T. Moore was challenging the Klan head-on. He was investigating beatings and lynchings and atrocities that they had committed. And my view is that he was killed by the Ku Klux Klan, even though I also believe it wasn't just a solitary act of Klan violence. I think they were really the hitmen for larger interests that wanted Harry T. Moore gone because of the blacks he was registering to vote. But I do believe that the Klan were the ones who actually carried out the, the murder. There was a Christmas picnic of the Klan uh, at Lake Jessup, just 20 miles away outside Sanford. There were indications that the Klan had been casing his house prior to the bombing. And there were a lot of accusations afterwards about particular Klansmen uh, that may have done it. The problem is no one has ever been able to identify exactly who did it because there's a sort of an oath of secrecy and silence around Klan hit operations like that. But I have no doubt that the Ku Klux Klan was responsible for the murder of Harry T. Moore. In 1952, Harry Moore was posthumously awarded the NAACP's highest honor, the Springgarn Medal, which is on display at the Harry and Harriet Moore Memorial Park in Mims, Florida. And the poet Langston Hughes memorialized him in his poem, The Ballad of Harry Moore. A horrific act by a terrorist organization could not silence the brave work of Moore and his wife because their legacy lives on. Langston Hughes, in his poem, reminds us of this. It seems that I hear Harry Moore, from the earth his voice cries, 
No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. So should you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, don't run and hide, you killers, he has no dynamite. In his heart is only love for all the human race, and all he wants is for every man to have his rightful place. And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries, no bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. If you would like to see these and other artifacts that tell the history of Central Florida, you can visit the Orange County Regional History Center, located at 65 East Central Boulevard, Orlando, Florida, 32801, and the Harry and Harriet Moore Memorial Park at 2180 Freedom Avenue, Mims, Florida, 32754. Make sure to join us for our next episode, Recorded Music.